Hey, Rod. What's happening? Organic deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm in L.A., man, so I'm like part hippie. But you, actually, this one you know because you, I think you use the same. Jason. Jason. Yeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. I just didn't Jason expect you to it. say deodorant. I was expecting something else. But yeah, <laughs> organic keep going. Free bread. Organic deodorant. Spray on kind. Organic deodorant. Yeah. It's money, man. Yeah. Like people don't understand the uh the aluminum oh, and especially the, uh, in antiperspirants. The aluminum and antiperspirants in particular. That stuff goes right in. Yeah. It's bad for and it. And actually there've been some recent studies that have been been talking about the uh the negative side effects of that over long-term use. Yeah. I'll tell you, mm-hmm. it's um I tried a lot like Burt's Bees and other things and I'm not, you know, trying to be negative on those. But the 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 stick does it just makes me sweaty. But the spray Well, you know, that's the thing though. Like everybody like cuz I I've read tons and tons of blogs and email or blogs and websites about people's top 5 organic deodorants and some love the sticks, some love the sprays. Mm. I actually there's one stick that works for me. I can't remember the name of it. But only one. Mm. All the other ones were garbage yeah. for me. But it's just it's gotta, it's all personal. You got to try them. But I, I and you love Jason. I just wish they had different scents. They do. I only what is it? It's like the pine forest. Yeah, they have the pine forest. They have like the cucumber, which I'm not a huge fan of the cucumber. I've never tried that. Yeah, um, but I think that might be the only two scents. But <laughs> I need more scents. <laughs> Hey, you know, if you're if you're into not having aluminum, I think this is a good one. How did this become your shtick or my shtick? Well, you know, I'm flipping the, I'm changing the game. (laughs) It was good. It was good. I'm Rodney, and I'm Keith. And this is the More In Common Podcast. Welcome. This is a place for genuine, authentic conversation where we explore that the, the fact that we do have more in common than that which divides us. want to remind you to get out to our website, www.moreincommonpod.com. It's the place to go to find all things More In Common. Also, as we are want to do prior to reviewing our last episode, we're going to read a review. It makes us feel good and hopefully it makes you feel good too. This one is titled Great Storytelling and Insightful Conversation. Such a great podcast that weaves great storytelling in with thought-provoking conversations. Love the premise that we all have so much to share and much more in common than we realize. Real talk, and it's so refreshing. You, Felix, too, are also refreshing. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. So in our last episode, we talked with Gina Choi. Keith, what did you take away from that conversation? First, and a small thing... Like, just this idea of asking kids, what did you do to have fun today? Like, meeting kids where they are instead of asking them, oh, what did you learn today or anything? Because it's really about us more more often than not. I just like that, that, that level set when you're talking to kids. What did you do to have fun today? Let's connect. I like but that. more more importantly, like, how she owns her identity as an overachiever, which easily has a negative connotation, Right. And since she has had panic attacks and has managed anxiety, which correlate greatly to being an overachiever, like she still owns that personality and it helps her manage through those tougher times. And I just, I think it's, it's admirable and it's awesome. And it's definitely something to learn from. Mm -hmm. How about you? 
passion. I've been thinking about passion. I mean, that was the premise of her TEDx talk, which we'll link in the notes. But since then, we've traded a couple emails and just talking about passion and what does it mean. And uh, I really like you called this out before, but just how she framed up that if you have a passion, just go do it. And you don't have to stop your life. You don't have to move to some remote country. You don't have to quit your job. Like you could just do it or do pieces of it and see how much you really do like it. And maybe it turns into something that you want to do with your life. And maybe not. Maybe it's just a hobby. Maybe it's just a thing that you like for a period of time. But that is the thing that stuck with me the most. Uh, yeah. Who, who are we, who are we talking to today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was awesome. And today we have Megan Scherer. Uh, Megan is a holistic nutritionist and wellness expert. She graduated from Pepperdine University and has a background in all things healthy living. Uh, She has extensively studied and been certified in holistic and sports nutrition, personal training, yoga, acro yoga, meditation, breath work, Reiki, emotional transformation, and eating psychology. She runs a private practice with one-on-one clients, uh, a corporate wellness consulting program, and mental health-focused wellness initiatives. And she also founded, which is the reason she was with us to is with us today, a nonprofit organization called Be More, dedicated to creating conversations and curriculum about how social media impacts self-esteem and mental health in teenagers. So, what did we talk about, dude? So, we talked about breaking down the stigma of mental health. And other conversations that matter to Megan specifically. Talk about her nonprofit, Be More. Talk about body image. And we get into quite a few other things. Um, One of the things that struck me about this, there's a moment where Megan is talking about doing uh, acro or acrobatic yoga on the beach. And there's this young girl uh, that is with them. And people start commenting on the young girl and how she looks and her age and her body. And Megan started to assume she was taking it a certain way and instead of acting on those assumptions she actually just asked the young girl a question she asked her how did it make her feel and it that has stuck with me and it's something that I'm trying to employ versus asking people a question versus assuming how I feel about the situation is accurate so something to listen for yeah no that's good um for me it was just how comfortable, you know, we, we pride ourselves on creating the space to have open and honest dialogue. And I think she did a really good job reciprocating that, especially when talking about sex and uh, sexual health when talking about it with young young adults. Um, we talk about that in, early in the episode, so I'll let that uh, segment speak for itself. But I thought that was, that was the one thing. It, it, it resonates and sticks in my mind when I think about Megan. So... We're excited to bring the episode to you as always and enjoy the show. Here we go. Wow, this is impacting my relationships. People are concerned about me. It's impacting my health. I'm at a point in my life now where like I'm concerned as a young woman about like my future fertility. Like I want to be able to have kids someday and I don't want to be the reason that I can't. I don't want to stand in my own way when it comes to anything in life and right now I'm doing that. My life is really limited because I've set so many rules for myself that I finally came to realize it was really hard to realize but they were arbitrary and I made all of them up. Nobody enforced these rules except for me. 
asked a great question earlier about having difficult conversations and I, I still think that the, the biggest thing is just having them. Even if, even if it's like awkward and you feel like you're doing it wrong and you're fumbling and you f maybe feel like you didn't get anywhere, you got somewhere just by having the conversation and shedding a little light on something that before they felt like they might not be able to talk about. Okay, so here we are. We are with Megan Scherer. Megan, how are you? I am doing so great now that I'm talking to you guys. So excited oh. to be here. Thanks for being with Likewise. us. Likewise. Absolutely. So, so to start the conversation, you said um, in an earlier prior to prior to the us starting to record something that's of interest to you right now is normalizing conversations that typically have been stigmatized. Now, this is something that we are very interested in, but we talk a lot about mental health on this, on the podcast. However, that was a very general comment about other conversations. So I'm very curious to understand what other conversations fall within that bucket that, that we may be even missing. It's, I mean, a great question. And mental health is for sure the, the big one. Mental health is the umbrella that I think a lot of these things fall under because the, the shame and secrecy that people can sometimes feel talking about conversations that aren't normalized can perpetuate mental health issues. Um, so especially when it comes to young people, that's a huge, huge topic that I am passionate and interested in address addressing. Um, another big one that kind of falls within that, um, especially when it comes to, to young girls, but boys as well, is sexual health and sexuality. Um, I think in our country and our Western culture in particular, sex is something that is definitely stigmatized and um, taboo. very taboo. Yeah. I mean, even like adults, I think, are more comfortable and confident talking about it. But teenagers are not encouraged to talk about sex in an open way at all. It's something that is... Um, in my experience and in a lot of my interactions with, with kids um, and adults who are reflecting on their adolescence, um, it's something that is definitely shrouded in, in shame and secrecy. That's a huge one. And I'm, I, th I, I can say that part of it is from the religious roots in the country, the Christian roots specifically, but other religions as well, and, what, and the stigmas that they have or, or put around it. And I saw a quote... Um, last week or the week before it's pretty interesting it said that it was something like talking about measles doesn't give you measles talking about uh sex doesn't make you pregnant or make you have sex like it was just breaking down like why you would want to talk about sex and sexual health and um mental health like talking about uh an eating disorder doesn't give you an eating disorder and a lot of people have that thought because Partially, they don't understand what what's going on with mental illness, um, but that's no, that's a huge that, that's a huge one. One we've not talked about much. It's really here. interesting. I'm, what I'm, other? Oh yeah, go ahead, Keith. No, I was going to say, say what, what else? Other, yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned eating <laughs> disorders, and that's a big one as well. Um, I think that there's just this tendency to avoid anything that um, tarnishes this 
this ideal of perfection. Anything that is considered bad or wrong just isn't talked about because it's like, okay, well maybe if we ignore it, it'll just go away. But we know that that's not the case at all. And in fact, ignoring it just creates more problems because then the, when people don't get answers to their questions, like they could be a really simple question that they needed a simple answer to, but because they didn't feel like they could ask it or didn't know where to go for the answer, it sort of spirals into a much bigger problem that didn't need to be there. Um, so I love what you guys are doing because just like having conversations, just talking is all we really need to do to start to address these seemingly big problems. I, I think the, um, I'd like to, to anchor on the, the, like, okay, so moment of reflection here. I am uncomfortable saying sex, um, not in the, and this is evaluating my own natural instinct of, of social pressure is especially it's one thing if Rodney and I are talking or if you were a man, right? But being a woman and Rodney and I, like there's a level of discomfort to talk about sex, especially, you know, in an open forum as to what talking about sex actually means, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't think about, it's almost like it's pornographic in our minds. So we don't, you know, think about it. You know, we had this situation at work the other day, just yesterday, where we're on a conference call and one of the other individuals on the call, there was a joke being made because it sounded like he was in the shower and he had made a joke and he's like, I won't make that joke because there's a woman on the call, right? And so I think that plays into that that divide and inability to actually have honest conversations. And I am curious, especially as it relates to teenagers, like what does that conversation look like? like yeah. You seem to have it a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm having it more and more because like you, it was something that I felt really uncomfortable talking about previously. And um, I mean, even, even the simple thought like that like you said, saying the word sex can feel uncomfortable. And, and that's something that I've really had to work on myself because in a setting like this, I'm like, oh God, what if like my parents are listening? Like my mom and yeah. dad are hearing me say the word <laughs> sex. Like even that has like its own sort of layers and complication to it. Um, so then talking about it with kids and as it relates to, to teenagers, um, feels even more taboo because it's like, well, they're definitely not supposed to be talking about it. Mm -hmm. But what I've been finding a lot is that there's the the lack of conversations around sex, sexual health, and sexuality can lead have led to a lot of um, like body image issues, which can play into eating disorders and mental health issues, um, just because there's not a lot of basis for teenagers to to go off of when it comes to like what's normal with their bodies, like. There's, there can be a lot of shame for, and I'm speaking more about young girls because I haven't necessarily had this conversation with a lot of young boys yet, um, but feeling like there's something different with you or wrong about you or like you're having, you know, experiences or feelings that you don't know how to, um, how to identify and nobody's talked about it before so you feel like you're the only one and then it just it kind of leads to this shame spiral of like what's wrong with me why am i different um and boys have it too i'm sure they yeah just, they just don't talk about it and it gets table or swept 
under the rug um as much if not more and i and i think also socially like boys are expected to even you know to talk about sex whereas socially you know in a crass way though not in a productive way but at least there's a an acceptance of it in, and not amongst all boys either, right? Like, so it, it's a very different depending on the individual. But I think socially, there's a a, a level of acceptance. That's well, it's, yeah, higher, I mean, like right? if you go to the our president right now, um, and like that conversation when when he says locker room talk, right? Well, yeah, I was gonna say it got tabled by saying, "Oh, that's locker room talk." Like, right. that's okay because it happens in a locker room, and it like it's. Really and so it's good. been so normalized that yeah. it's like we don't even evaluate like well what is that and why is that and where's it come from like what's happening there how's that affecting our boys how's that affecting their relationships with young girls and women yeah there's this whole like boys will be boys mentality and it's like no why aren't we empowering boys to have conversations that feel good for them too because maybe they don't want to be sort of shoved into this box where they feel like they can only talk about sex in these ways that are really disempowering and that they're not necessarily honoring like disrespectful yeah exactly so why aren't we giving them permission to have better conversations too, rather than just writing it off as boys will be boys? Now it's one of oh, one of yeah one of our mentors. His wife is a uh, she's got a family um, medicine practice um, further like on the east coast or middle of the country, and, but she's from somewhere in Scandinavian region in Europe, and they have a far more open culture talking about sex with children at younger ages, and so. When she's seeing teenage girls, like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, um, she asks them, and she does it when their parents in the room. She's like, are you sexually active? And often mothers will jump in, or parents, whomever's in the room, usually it's a mother, but, like, mother will jump in and say, no, she's not. And she'll turn to the parent and say, I didn't ask you. I'm asking her. Like, if if you... <laughs> When you were her age, did you tell your parents you were sexually active? Like, I'm ask, I'm her physician, and to take care of her health, I need to know whether or not she is because we need to talk about this because – and she's not directly saying this. Well, maybe she is directly saying this because, like, a lot of parents aren't having this conversation because they're assuming, well, it's my kid. My kid wouldn't do that. And it's like, well, like, my kid wouldn't – you know, that, 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 that doesn't work out so well if you look at a lot of the – issues around sex or around whatever things that kids shouldn't be doing that they're doing when the conversations just never had. Um, so I, I thought of that when you, and, that and I do want to add context um, for the audience to know mm-hmm. that uh, Megan talks about sex with young children. <laughs> just for the, fun. Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> I go to the playground. The fr- <laughs> <laughs> In the framework of your nonprofit, be more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So, great. Great. That is that is that is good. Yeah. We might have, we have lost some concerned like, listeners out there. <laughs> like, what, who is this person? Questions? Why are Rodney and Keith talking to this person who just talks to little girls about sex? <laughs> um, so I'm curious. So obviously it's part of the nonprofit, right? But how? And this is actually a theme in a lot of what your nonprofit does, right? So if I think about the the role of uh, social media in their lives uh, it's something that you guys do or 
just the overall importance of the body and self-image, there's this large impact, um, whether it's parental, who allow for you know device usage regularly, aren't comfortable with their child talking about sex, not necessarily with you talking, but just their child talking about it. Or then you take into account like image where if I'm watching a football game, I see a bunch of normal looking dudes. Then I see a really attractive uh, female, either moderating the dudes or standing on the sideline. Like, Oh, you're talking about the announcers. I was like, those football yeah. players aren't normal looking. No, dudes. no, not the football players. <laughs> the announcers <laughs> or the people behind the screen. Like, how do you manage to combat that so you can have an honest conversation about these things and actually deliver impact to these kids so they don't, like the, these things don't affect them as much. I mean, that's a huge question um, because, <laughs> yeah, like these are issues that have been present for centuries. Like, there's always been a focus on image. Essentially, like, there's always been sort of this beauty pageant type contest mentality to life because even going back to like caveman times like whatever was deemed the most attractive then was going to get the best mate to reproduce and like continue on the species and you can even see it in like rome you see the statues like the romans were idealists so like they're all the statues everybody looks amazing muscular and strong and then like the greeks who had their own version of it they were less perfect but they still look great it's like it's it's been throughout time yeah it's for sure. it's you look back and it's never really not been important um and now that we're in this age of social media it's constant it's 24-7, all the time, we're being exposed to these different images and ideals of, of what we should look like and what we should care about, what should matter. Um, but we're also at a really, really incredible time in society that anybody can achieve just about anything. Like, there's so much opportunity available. And, you know, from my perspective, I think that a lot of that opportunity is wasted when we spend too much time, especially at a young age, caring about what we look like. And I'm speaking from personal experience, and I'm also speaking from experience in, in interacting with kids through my nonprofit, um, and just friends who have kids of that age. It, it's, it's sad to see somebody with so much brightness and light and joy and love to share and intelligence and humor and wit and all these things just like making a weird duck face into a camera and like changing oh. the filters a million <laughs> times to get a bunch of likes duck face. it's oh instagram yeah instagram poses in general Mm. And I mean, like, I love mm -hmm. it. I love social media. I love the opportunity that it affords and the way that it sure. does connect us to other people and that it can be fun and we can share our passions with each other. But when you fall into the trap of, like, let me just focus on what I look like above all else, you're just missing so much opportunity for life in general. And so going back to the question you asked, like, how do we even set the stage for these conversations, um, it's... It's, it's like bit by bit. It's, you know, like chipping away at a really big, big 
societal norm that's been there for a really long time in starting to get people to see that we are so much more than what we look like. And, you know, it's okay to want to take care of yourself. I think it's great to want to take care of yourself and feel and look your best. Um, but there's a line where it just becomes a little bit like too much and like how can you reprioritize and refocus that attention on something that that matters a little bit more in the grand scheme of things. I'm very curious though to kind of go back to the the sex talk. Like how do you over like how do you do that with as Rodney said these these bigger parents. Like parents might not be comfortable with this. Yeah. This is something that like how does that interaction that relationship place? Yeah. Yeah, so that's actually a question that is really relevant right now because it's um this these conversations about like um sex and sexual health and sexuality as it relates to body image and mental health and just overall well-being of a person, an adolescent, is something that is has been coming up a lot more recently for us within Be More um, in the last, I'd say, mm. six months or less. Oh, wow. um, Be More originally started as a passion project a few years ago to teach young girls about um, body image and self-esteem and sort of the body positivity movement. and. I was just doing local community events to work with girls on having these kinds of conversations. And really quickly, it spiraled into something a lot bigger than that when I started to see and hear a need from the, the girls, their parents, their educators, and realizing that the boys needed to be included in this conversation as well of how social media was impacting their self-esteem and mental health. So. We started developing curriculum, um, in-school curriculum and digital campaigns to teach kids about um, those issues and starting to have conversations with them. And then as we got deeper into those issues and we're having focus groups with the kids, that's when a lot more of these issues started to come to the surface and I just keep discovering layers of, of what's really going on and then reflecting on my own adolescence and again talking to adults and asking them to reflect back on their adolescence and like what they struggled with what resources they wish they had what conversations they wish people had had with them adults had had with them and so um i've been in a position where we've been developing a lot more resources for parents in particular and just like having workshops with parents to teach them how to have these kinds of conversations because I think a lot of the time, yeah, they might feel like I don't want my kid talking about that, but it's because they haven't really learned how to talk about it themselves. So they figure just like off limits is better because they don't want to get into dicey territory. And they don't, and they don't want, and they may not want to mess it up. And then... Exactly. Yeah. Or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, I think, a matter of empowering people with, um, you know, you asked a great question earlier about having difficult conversations. And I, I still think that the, the biggest thing is just having them, even if even if it's like awkward and you feel like you're doing it wrong and you're fumbling and you f maybe feel like you didn't get anywhere, you got somewhere just by having the conversation and shedding a little light on something that before they felt like they might not be able to talk about. And so first thing I think, yeah, just making your kids feel comfortable coming to talk to you about anything, whether it be sex, whether it be bullying, friendships, social media, eating disorders, any of that. 
Um, and we acknowledge that a lot of the times, kids aren't gonna wanna talk to their parents about some of these things. Like when you're a teenager, 13, 14, 15, like your parents are the last person, unless you have like one of those amazing open parent-child relationships that seem really elusive and I'm honestly really impressed by. <laughs> um, you don't necessarily wanna talk to them and you might not have teachers that you wanna talk to either because you're scared it would get back to your parents. Um, and your friends don't necessarily have the answers either. So it's interesting that you asked that question because I'm, we're right in the middle right now of developing a resource that basically addresses this problem for kids and giving them a safe, safe space to go and ask these questions and get them answered. Do you find that piece, especially parental to child dialogue about sex to be probably one of the more difficult things to overcome? Yeah, I would say I would say parent to child dialogue about um, anything that the parent perceives as difficult or um, mm. yeah, challenging in any way is is going to present an issue because they will be filtering how they're having the conversation. Right. And controlling it. Controlling it, exactly. And I personally don't have any kids myself, but I've spent a lot of time with kids. And, um, you know, I th think about this relationship I had a few years ago. Um, so I do acro yoga for just for fun. I love it. It's, you do acro? Yeah, nice. I do some acro. Do you teach it? I do teach it, actually. Oh, yeah. Good. We will hit you up. On Perfect. That. It's, um, yeah, it's so much fun. You're in L.A., so you should come. There's... Um, like a big community that gets together on the beach in Santa Monica to just play and do acro and it's yeah. very empowering. Um, Definitely down. There's this little girl, she's not little anymore, but she was 11 at the time when she sort of found this community. Her parents brought her down to the beach. Um, they thought it would be really cool for her. She, we instantly bonded with her. She was like this little miniature adult who could hang with all of us and um, was a really talented acrobat too. And she's really, really small for her. She was really small for her age. Um, her parents are like five foot one and five foot two. So naturally she's pretty little. Um, and as she was growing up, you know, she was, 11 turning 12 turning 13 people would start having conversations around around her at the beach saying like oh you're getting so much bigger and like commenting on the size of her body all the time it was just something that was commented on because she was so little and that can make for a really good flyer in acro yoga um sure. i at the time was so flyer as in someone oh. who can flyer thank you for clarifying flyer is the person who in partner acrobatics is the one being lifted so the one being like tossed around in the air you can imagine if somebody's like 60 pounds it's going to be a lot easier to throw them than if they're twice that um and i was right in the midst of like getting started with be more and was really sensitive to these conversations about body image and like protecting young girls and making them feel like they're okay no matter what shape or size or weight or whatever they are. Um, and so I was really sensitive at the time to people saying these things about her and I would, I found myself trying to like shield her from hearing those things and I would tell people like stop commenting on her body, like just stop saying that because we don't know what that's gonna to do to her. And after a while, I found myself saying like, wow, why am I 
trying to control this situation and trying to control her environment and limit what she hears rather than just talking to her about it, like asking her questions like, how does it feel for you when people say those things? And what do you think about the fact that you're growing, you're getting taller and naturally like your body's changing? And it was such a shift for me realizing that like I didn't have to fear these conversations because I was so feel fearful that her experience was going to become like mine. And when I was a teenager, I had an eating disorder and I wanted to shield her from that, that painful experience. But she's a different person than I am. And I think parents have to realize that too. Your children, even though they're your children, they're not you. They're different than you are and they're going to have a different life experience than you do. So rather than trying to shield them from these painful things, why not just ask them more questions and get them talking and then find out where they're at? And or shielding is that. Like shielding isn't putting a, putting a wall up and, or keeping them, what is it, uh, Rapunzeling them? Yeah. Um, it is, is that a, that's a verb now. Totally. Or it's, it's talking to them about the world that they're going to be a part of. And... When you said that, a light bulb went off. I was like, oh my, like, I have a almost two-year-old. Keith has a two-and-a-half-year-old and a nine-and-a-half nine, week old. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I, I can't even thank you. I can't even tell you how many conversations revolve around, oh my God, they're getting so big. Like, side, body, 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 body. Like, oh, they're too big. They're not big enough. They eat too much. They don't oh, yeah, eat enough. Totally. Like, so many conversations revolve like I do it, my parents do it, the siblings do it, random people at the grocery store do it. Oh my god, I haven't seen her in weeks, she's getting so big. And like it's a fact, but at the same time it's like, oh, I want so some of that self image or actually I won't even make a comment there, I'll ask you. When you're talking to young women mainly about self image, how many like where do you ask them how they think about it? They think it comes from inside or from within or without? Like what did they say? Yeah, it's a great question because, and again, this just is another um, more evidence pointing to how, like, the body is so changing and so temporary. So the fact that we care about it so much is silly. But when kids are little, they're really proud of getting bigger. Like, mm -hmm. I've got friends with little girls, little kids, who up until like age six, seven, they're like, I'm a big girl, like I'm getting bigger and like they're so proud. But do they care about it because they care about it or because everybody around them is like, oh, yeah. you're a big girl, you're getting bigger. You're like, it, yeah. do they care about it or do they care about it because the people that they have grown up around care about Yeah, it? they're getting this affirmation and maybe part of it's biological too. Like maybe we understand that if we're getting bigger and stronger, like it means that we're healthy and we're growing and we're doing what we're supposed to do. But they're getting that external validation too. So like they're feeding into that. And then somewhere along the lines that changes and for girls it changes to getting bigger is not necessarily a good thing anymore um, keep yourself small for boys there's a lot of pressure to continue to get bigger for boys it's like get taller get stronger like you must be these things to be a successful man in society and or to even be considered a, a man. man yeah yeah and I think that for the kids that I've talked to, at least, a lot of that is external and then becomes internalized. Like they see these images, they hear what is supposed to be acceptable, um, and then they take that on as like their truth. And kids are really smart too. 
when you get them to start questioning that, when you get them to challenge those beliefs, I've had so many kids like of all ages admit that like, yeah, I don't necessarily think that's true, but everyone else does. And so I feel like I have to. Um, and it's really cool to see them kind of take back their power and start to believe that like whatever they are is okay. Like, no, and, and yeah. it's, it's such an interesting component of evolutionary psychology that just doesn't reflect in today's society when you consider the fact that, yes, it mattered a long time ago when we had to survive, that I as a man was bigger and stronger and, you know, but even then, like, physical appearance for a woman wasn't, was very different and, and necessary for biological sustenance for producing other human beings and yet now we still put a lot of that stock in those same things we don't fight as many wars um especially in first world societies uh, you know much of what we do is you know it, it doesn't matter whether we're bigger or stronger unless you're an athlete and then that's something that matters but we we generalize this still uh, especially from a male perspective versus versus it being something that's relevant to the life that you live and it being about the world that you want to be a part of you you know we we you know overgeneralize these things um you know if you want to be a supermodel be super skinny and you know that's what you're going to do that, that that's what it looks like but it doesn't mean everybody has to be that just because of some unnecessary standard of physical appearance that we put on especially little girls and i have to comment on this idea that that story you told it it, it just the allyship idea of t don't do that because it's going to offend them where this is something that we've been talking about a lot lately is it isn't about what you think this generalization of activity is going to do on any one individual, it's up to, and I love that you came to that conclusion. It's like, wait a second, does it offend her? Does it bother her? What if she doesn't even pay attention to it and she just ignores it because, you know, people keep saying it and eh, whatever, right? Like, oh, then I'm not going to make as big of a deal of it. And I think that's such an important component of any supporting relationship role towards the idea of, of, other, of anything of anything whatsoever yeah, i mean I, lo I love it when people come up to me and tell me i should um like oh that offended you didn't it like that that's racist <laughs> it, it may or may not have been but like whether or not it offended me is another question yeah altogether. yeah and i think we make so many assumptions based on our own background and experience and and life we've lived so far but we don't stop to realize that everyone else is having an entirely different life experience. So speaking of background and experience, <laughs> you've alluded to you multiple times. I was going to ask. <laughs> I have this, I have this checked because there has been three times where you've brought up in a side in, in, in one fashion or another, your personal uh, personal experience with self image. And you just, I think said eating disorder. Um, so like, what is your experience with this and even your, yeah. yeah, like what brought you to be more? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so interesting because, um, you know, all these things that I talk about are things that I have intimately 
struggled with or experienced myself. And I think that that's often the case in life. Like we teach what we need to learn and mm. what we go through and become passionate about are ultimately like, I think what our, our part of our life purpose is. And, and we're meant to give back the lessons that we've learned. Um, so for me, you know, as a teenager, I struggled with um, anorexia and it was definitely, you know, it was early 2000s and Thin was really in, like in all the magazines at the time, like a lot of celebrities were very, very thin and that was, that was considered to be popular. And I learned through like one of my high school biology classes about counting calories in they were teaching it because they wanted to teach, you know, scientifically how the body processed calories, processed food. Um, but I took that as like, cool, okay, I can use this to like change my body. And um, was underweight and under eating for quite some time. Um, it was probably about five or six years before I started to get a lot healthier. Um, through that time, I really developed a passion through, for nutrition and how food actually has the power to impact the human body in a really positive and powerful way, or negative, depending on what you're consuming and how you look I at it. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so learning about nutrition led me to be really passionate about helping other people with their nutrition. I was getting into a place where I felt a lot healthier um, physically and was learning more about body confidence, body acceptance, the idea of self-love, which was something I hadn't considered or heard of until my early 20s, um, and was already starting to, to be passionate about um, teaching people what I was learning. And then in my early 20s, I was in a really bad car accident. Um, I was hit by a drunk driver and um, ultimately, I had physical injuries, dislocated shoulder. I had a concussion that led to something called post-concussive syndrome. And this leads into a whole nother conversation about mental health and how I started dealing with mental health issues that had never been there before. But basically, at the same time, I was searching for something to make me feel like myself again because I did not feel like myself at all. I felt lost. I felt so adrift and um was that literally because of the post-concussive syndrome like were there things happening that yeah like, what is it so is i came to find out much later at the time i had no idea what was wrong with me i just felt like i'm broken and i don't know why um and it wasn't until later um being diagnosed and working with a neurologist that i understood like what was actually happening in my brain um but basically when somebody gets a concussion there are there's a percentage of people who can suffer from something called post-concussive syndrome, which is like a cluster of symptoms, including depression and anxiety and fatigue and irritability, and just basically you're not yourself anymore. And that can last anywhere from a few weeks to a few years. And for me, it lasted a few years. Um, and so, but at the time, again, not knowing what was wrong with me, I was really just looking for something to feel like myself again. And because I had also had to take time off from like working out and training because of the injuries that I had, um, a friend suggested that I compete in fitness competitions to like maybe start to feel like an athlete again. And like working out might like promote having more endorphins and I would feel happier and more positive. So I got into the world of bodybuilding 
And that'll give you some image issues. That will give you some major image issues. Yeah, that's a, that's a world, isn't it? It's a real world. <laughs> and it was a huge lesson for me because I thought, you know, I had already overcome this eating disorder and learned about like self-love and self-esteem. And now I'm in this world of of bodybuilding which is entirely focused on aesthetic i came to learn like it's not really about how strong you are it's about how good you look and you could be the least healthy Especially person the fitness, well actually bodybuilding too but the fitness arena is 100 percent like yeah it's wild like i came to learn that people in the fitness industry are actually some of the least healthy people i've ever met like you would assume that they're, they're so healthy because they look so great, but a lot of them are going to really drastic extremes to get their body to look. In order to cut up. Yes. Yeah. What would you? Okay, so let me ask. Well, um, the is it? Do you think it's possible to compete in that arena and have self love and it be healthy, or do you? Or and I ask that because I know some fitness competitors, and I've known, and all of them like had. a a very hard time with the idea of self-love like they were their confidence was very low their self-confidence was very low which which on the outside looking in i'm like hey bro like look at your adonis look at you like you should be killing it but they were not yeah um from my personal experience being in that industry for about two years i would say no i don't think that any of those people are self-actualized when it comes to self-love I think that the intention can be good sometimes, definitely not all the time. Like for me, my intention was to get into it, to get stronger again, to feel more empowered, to feel like myself. And so that first show that I did, it was it was cool in that it gave me a sense of accomplishment. Like I set a goal and I reached it. The problem was that I kept going. And that's the problem for a lot of people in that same world is that there's never enough. Like there's always, it, it is subjective. Like appearance is subjective and you're being literally judged. Being judged. Well, but you're, lit <laughs> you're being judged on the way you look and you're being told that like, okay, you're in fourth place out of however many people. And so they're categorizing the way you look compared to other people, which sounds which objective. Look different. Yeah, but it's so subjective. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're automatically developing these, these belief systems that you're not good enough and you've got to do something else or work harder to be better, to look better, even though from the outside looking in, your friends are like, dude, you're in the best shape of your life. Like, you look crazy good. Why aren't you just happy with that? So there's a lot, a lot of struggle within the fitness industry, I think, and, uh, as far as people not feeling great about themselves, even though physically they look did what we would that, say is did great. that lead like okay so we need to i need to level set <laughs> on a few things before yeah, we there's go a lot too there. far on this yeah so and you do what a lot of people do and i actually love that a lot of people do this you brush over I'm glad things. you're doing it because i was going to do this exact thing <laughs> i wrote it <laughs> You, you brush over things, right? Like, eh, you know, eh, I dealt with some things. Uh, I had anorexia five to six years, you know, and then I got better, right? Um, getting hit, you know, post-concussive syndrome led to root things being dealt with, right? Like, let's talk about that because that leads to, okay, fitness and the impact that that resets some of those things. But not everybody's journey 
with especially eating disorders comes from image, but at the same time, it's still a possibility. And it's, you know, commonly a, a misconception. It's like, oh, you know, you, you look great, right? So why do you care? But you keep going. Like, what was it for you? Um, yeah, I mean, five to six years, obviously, long time. And you did some things to come out of that. But let's 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 unpack that a little bit because I'm sure that that story's been told once or twice. Yeah, I mean, it's. Thank you for calling that out because it's so easy for me to once I have come out the other side of something and analyzed it to death and pulled the lessons that I needed to pull from it to just put it in a in a pretty package with a pretty bow and say like, well, this was that chapter and now it's done so I'm not I'm not really in it anymore so I don't feel that emotional would that, charge. Would that be compartmentalization? A little bit. A little bit? A little bit. I would say so I mean if we're talking about the eating disorder that I struggled with as a teenager, I wouldn't say it's compartmentalized in that I'm trying to like avoid it. Like I really have processed pretty much everything there is to process with that. So there isn't a lot of emotional charge to it anymore. If we're talking about the more recent experiences that I've had, like with the post-concussive syndrome and even like the, the bodybuilding and all of that, that's been in the last six years. And you guys are actually catching me at like a really raw and vulnerable time with that. Um, it can be really easy to just like brush past things that we've been through, but there's, there, there's so many layers to them. And I want to acknowledge that for people listening because it's not easy. Like at the time when I was dealing with anorexia, it was not easy easy it was very difficult and painful and it wasn't easy to just get over and heal from and you know going through post-concussive syndrome it's not easy at all and there are so many sort of dark and painful times that people don't see when you're telling your story on the other side when you're able to share the lessons that you've learned there's no way to like share everything with everybody about how hard it really was and I want people listening who are going through something to understand that like it's okay if you don't have yours in a pretty package yet. It's so normal to not be able to just like brush past things because they are still emotionally charged and they do still hurt. So what was what was it for you in those first 5 to 6 years? Like let's start there. Yeah, I think that I mean in addition to it just being like something that was popularized in the media to look a certain way. I think that it was also, for me, I learned that it was a control mechanism, that I was definitely very type A and wanted to control all the things going on in my life, but I was learning some harsh realities at that time that like you can't control everything that's happening outside of you, like whether it's your parents, your family, your relationships, um, you know, where you get into school, like all these kinds of things that are maybe a little bit beyond your control can feel overwhelming as a teenager. And to have, for me to have one thing to latch onto that I felt like I could control, and that was my body and what I was putting in it, um, became like a coping mechanism. And so in addition to feeling this pressure from society of just wanting to be small and wanting my body to look a certain way, because I thought that that would make me lovable and acceptable, um, 
I also just had this coping mechanism that felt like it was working for me until it wasn't. Until I realized like, wow, this is impacting my relationships. People are concerned about me. It's impacting my health. I'm at a point in my life now where like, I'm concerned as a young woman about like my future fertility. Like I wanna be able to have kids someday and I don't wanna be the reason that I can't. I don't wanna stand in my own way when it comes to anything in life. And right now I'm doing that. My life is really limited because I've set so many rules for myself that I finally came to realize it was really hard to realize, but they were arbitrary and I made all of them up. Nobody enforced these rules except for me. Um, so it was Question, hard. You said type, yeah. you said type A. Would you say you're, uh, we've set rules. Um, but would you, would you qualify yourself as a rule follower? Yes, absolutely. I did not like to break rules. I was like, you know, teacher's pet and like upstanding citizen and just like tried to do everything right. Because in my mind, everything was an equation. Like if you do X, you will get Y. And mm -hmm. I thought that that's just how life worked. So like if I did everything right, then I was going to get everything I wanted and it was just all going to go my way. Um, I've come to learn that that's not how it goes. That's not necessarily. That's kind of how we teach, though. That's like our, our education system. Like it's underlying. It's not directly said, but it's kind of like, well, if you do these things, then it'll work out. And it's like, hmm. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's remarkable even, I mean, clinically you can hear it all day long or understand it, but you know, we, this is the third time we've talked about anorexia on our show. Control, control. Or technically we just won't be able to. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's always, you know, it's, it's, and, and I think hearing this, you know, especially with anybody else who might be struggling to, to find it, like or anybody that's seeing someone struggle with it, especially it's, it's, it, it is a control mechanism in, in many, 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 many cases. Right. Um, I have a question or a thought as you were saying that I was like control. Okay. I've heard this three times, four times now actually for anorexia. And are, is it true that the numbers for anorexia are higher for girls than boys? Yes. That was my guess. Um, so what is it about, control for young women specifically in the u.s that like you know is it a lack of solidarity is it a lack of is i mean like we i can say very clearly that there are uh there are some side there are inequities between men and women in this country and the world for that matter but i'm wondering which ones play into this and how like i wonder is like what is it little girls are seeing well, the only way to get control is to through your body and through what you eat. And it seems to be a very large issue, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm just free flowing right now. Yeah, I think that, okay, so if we're looking at these things from like an energetic standpoint, control is more of a masculine energy. Um, you know, everybody's got masculine and feminine within them and um, there's a balance between the two and um, one nor the other is neither good nor bad. It's, it's really great to have sort of a synergy. Um, but I think that if we're looking at recent, more modern times in our Western society, there's pressure on young girls to adopt more of a masculine energy 
part of that's coming from a really good place. It's because we're in these times where, you know, women have the right to vote and we're fighting for equal pay and there's this fight for equality that wasn't necessarily prevalent before. And you see a lot more young girls and women stepping into more m traditionally masculine roles in society and um, getting to determine their own future. But with that, I think also comes the pressure to control and determine their own future. And this is totally just a guess and me spitballing based on the question you asked, but that's really what comes up for me is that like there are just by nature of where we're at right now, more women in that space of, of wanting to control their destiny and yeah. maybe going a little bit too far and trying a little bit too hard to control things and that can spiral into obsessive behaviors like eating disorders. I know Keith wants to go somewhere else, but I, I love that you just said that. Um, I feel like a lot of people aren't willing to acknowledge that. Like, there's a lot of different modalities, jobs, situations that just weren't available, like for not good reasons, but they weren't. And now they are. And with that comes new things, new stuff, good and bad. Unintended consequences, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. No, I think that's an interesting take on it. There's a lot of clinical work done on the Delta. I mean, because anorexia in women is is far and away greater than it is in men. Not that it doesn't exist. Is it same for bulimia as well? All eating disorders. Oh, okay. Um, and you know, a lot of it is tied to the social standings around what that means for each each sex right and even if the root cause is not necessarily um body image itself it is control it is the it's thing like you that can't, you can't, we're taught you can't, we can control right yeah. yeah and you can't untie nature or environment or from society. like you, you can't, can't completely yeah you can't decouple it there you go so kind of fascinating you did so what kind of work got you out of that like how did you get yeah. yourself out of that um so a combination of um I worked with a dietitian um, to just really learn more about like, okay, scientifically, like what is it that my body needs to heal and to not just survive, but really thrive and become healthy again. Um, because when you're in a, an eating disordered place, you can't really trust your own judgment when it comes to food anymore and what is right for your body because you've said all How these things. How did you rules. get to realize that, <clears throat> that you couldn't necessarily yeah. trust what you thought about it? Just based off the fact that what I knew what I was doing was not working anymore. Like I knew I didn't feel g good. I didn't have energy. I didn't feel great all the time. Um, and I had been in that pattern long enough to know that like, okay, it's not working. And the definition of insanity is to keep trying the same thing and expecting a different result. Um, I feel fortunate in that I came to those realizations. Um, did anybody at a, help at a young you? Age. Like, did when I was in uh, a senior in high school, um, and I was probably at my lowest weight. Um, I was definitely at my lowest weight. So physically, I people had the most cause for concern at that time. Um, there were people in my life, like um, 
administrators at my school, adults in my life, parents who were trying to trying to have these conversations with me and point me in the right direction, get me help. Um, at that point, I was in denial a little bit because I didn't want to give up this awesome control mechanism sure. and tool that I had gained. So I did a really good job of just convincing everybody I was fine. And um, I had other like health issues that were discovered at that time. Like I was having digestive issues and food allergies. So it was really easy to just play it off as like, no, I'm allergic to all these foods, so I can't eat them. Mm. Um, so people kind of just accepted that because I told them that was the deal. Like I'm just allergic to everything. So that's, that's what's going on here. So mm. a few years later in college, I had to just kind of be my own advocate and realize like, okay, I've been a little dishonest with myself. Like, yes, I may have been diagnosed with food allergies, but I also am not doing all that I can to be healthy. Um, and I want to be. What did that for you? Like, cause that, I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to just do on your own, especially coming from that state, right? Like how, what, what triggered that, that switch? It, for me, it was that I was seeing the lives my friends were living in college, and I was seeing the way I was living my life, and I just felt like, I, I felt out of control. Like what previously had given me this sense of control now made me feel completely out of control, and, and like I, um, no matter what I did, I wasn't experiencing like the same joy as them or the same, um, feeling of accomplishment when you accomplish something, it was just never enough. And um, I didn't want to feel that way anymore. Like I just, I wanted to just like be a kid and experience life how other kids were and not feel like this pressure to, to have everything be so perfect. I think I was starting to realize that like perfection was an illusion and mm. that was, it took a it's long time. Amazing what brain development does. It's it like it's to the idea of especially young adults who are in it's something that seems like it will never end. It's like, well, your brain's not done developing yet. You might figure some things out because you still got, you know, ten years maybe of brain development and prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex development that's going to start triggering some things. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um Fast forward. So you started to get into nutrition and work with the dietitian yeah. and see what nutrition could do for you that it wasn't. Yeah, and I had already been studying nutrition and um, a little bit of exercise science on my own. Again, it was this weird double-edged sword. Like I was so passionate about health and nutrition and mm -hmm. was trying to... Um, promote leading a healthy lifestyle yet at the same time like didn't realize that I was being so unhealthy um, so I had this knowledge that I had gained from the nutrition courses and the studying that I had done um, in college that I, I knew I wasn't applying so I knew that maybe working with somebody else to hold me accountable to those things would help guide me towards um, a little bit like healthier behavior I think what blew my mind in college I was talking to somebody that was studying like health and kinesiology and I wish I had studied that now but um they were like yeah you can be a fat skinny person I was like what and then they were like yeah, yeah you could have you all your organs could be surrounded in fat and you could be un more unhealthy than somebody who looks like they're fat or like rounder and like there's different body types like and that will affect how you look regardless of what you do for eating and working out 
And that just like my heart, my head just like popped. And I was like, what? I didn't even know. Yeah. So, the human so, body is fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. it's especially when there are so many people on the planet. So fast forward to um, the accident, post-concussive syndrome. And obviously you're in a raw state about all this, but you kind of alluded that you were heading in a direction on this of the impact of that, especially relating to your, your past struggles with anorexia. Like, so what, what ended up happening? Like, I want to complete that story. Yeah. So with, in regards to the body image stuff in particular. Yeah. 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 You, you kind of, I, oh, you, with the fitness training and all that yep. stuff, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. Cause there's kind of like two different tracks there post-accident. There's like all the yeah. mental health conversation and then the body image conversation. And so I dove further into the bodybuilding world and was realizing not only that it wasn't making me feel better, even though I was getting in like subjectively the best shape of my life. I was like super low body fat and super cut up and like was placing well in these competitions, but I didn't feel any better about myself or just about life in general. I was still not feeling like myself. Um, and I was seeing all these other people kind of struggle in similar ways. Um, they have different experiences and histories, but like they still, no matter what they did, they didn't feel like they were enough and they had to continue to compete to feel better about themselves. And I didn't like that. Um, but I was still doing it because I thought, you know, I, you, it's just so easy to think once you're wrapped up in that, that the more you do, the better you're, you'll feel. And there's so much pressure in that industry to look perfect to look really symmetrical as you said and one thing that's really common for women in particular um, you're getting so lean you're losing almost all your body fat like to a pretty unhealthy extreme for most women and so naturally like you're losing the natural curves of your body and it's really common for women in that industry to get um, breast implants um, because the judges are looking for symmetry. It's like they want you to be super lean, have like tiny waists and muscular bodies, but you've got to have boobs. You've got to have boobs, right. Body right. Yeah. Yeah. Boobs are, boobs <laughs> are mainly fat, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Like even – so I grew up somebody who like – I wasn't somebody who like had boob, like big boobs to begin with. I was always like pretty small chested, and that came with its own sort of like pressure as a teenage girl. Um, but it's something I ultimately like kind of like accepted about my body. And then when I was competing, like any boobs that I did have were like gone mm. because you lose all your body yeah. fat. And again, I was still in this place where I was feeling really lost, feeling really like what's going to make me feel better about life, about myself. And I still thought this world maybe was it. Um, and in a really sort of like tenuous, rash manner, I decided to get uh, breast implants. And, um, after I had that surgery, I didn't do another competition. I made the decision I wanted to stop competing because it was such a, it was such a wake up call for me to mm. realize, like, I literally just cut my body open to change it, to fit somebody else's ideal mm. for a plastic trophy. Like, what was the point of that? <laughs> And that was a really hard realization for me to have because it was an extreme. Like it wasn't just, you know, dieting and dehydrating myself to look a certain way. Like I went under the knife and I ultimately had that, the surgery reversed. Um, 
about two years later and had the implants taken oh, out. I didn't, know that. I didn't even know that was doable. It's doable, yeah. More and more women are actually doing it now for a variety of reasons, but it's becoming more popular, which is kind of cool to see, um, that they're getting like an explant surgery. Mm. And so for me, it was, it was that, that I finally realized like, whoa, look at what we do to ourselves. Look at the extremes that we go to to fit this image of what society says women should look like. And why? Who decided that? And why did I believe it? And how many other young girls out there are believing the same thing and going through the same internal turmoil and struggle that, that maybe I can help spare them from? So did you hear? I'm sorry. Keep I was just going to say that was ultimately like <laughs> what wrapped up that story and led me to start Be More. Because that is generally like this is a personality trait, like the ambition, the drive. How do you prevent it from happening mm. again? For me in my life mm -hmm. or for other no, people? For you in your life. Yeah. Mm, that's a great question. And um, I think something that I've been fortunate enough and also forced to learn through these experiences is um, self-compassion and this ability to just be a little bit easier on myself and, and like I said, not take myself so seriously. Um, I can't say for sure that I'll never get into a position again where I'm really disciplined and hard on myself about something in particular. Um, I can say with almost absolute certainty that it won't be in the realm of food and body image. Um, I feel really complete when it comes to those issues to the point where sometimes talking about them feels irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Like it might've sounded like I skirted mm -hmm. over those five, six years of anorexia yeah. because for me that feels so, I'm so far removed from it. Yeah. It feels like it mm -hmm. almost didn't happen in this lifetime. Yeah. Like it's not you almost. Yeah, like it's yeah. not me. And even when I reflect on the bodybuilding, like sometimes I get even a little bit embarrassed talking about it because I feel like I'm talking about somebody else, but I know it's myself. Mm -hmm. I know that's my story. It's just that I don't identify with her anymore. Like that's a different version of me. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that I've done the work and come as far as I have because I know a lot of women who feel like they are going to struggle with an eating disorder for the rest of their lives. And there are people even in the eating disorder recovery world, um, like health practitioners who will, who will say to patients that like, you're always going to have an undertone of this mm. for the rest of your life, like alcoholism, mm -hmm. like you're always going to be thinking about wanting to drink, even if you're not doing it. And I don't subscribe to that belief at all. Hmm. I really feel like it's possible to make full recovery to the point where you're living a life where you're not always thinking about the food you're putting in your body. And I mean, I think human nature is that you might still have thoughts about whether or not you feel good or look good one day. Like, I don't think a hundred percent of the time we're going to love the way we look, but that doesn't mean that you're still obsessing over the things you used to be obsessing over. Sure. Um, so yeah, I can't predict for sure whether or not it will happen, but I know my number one tool in my arsenal that I've learned is self-compassion. So the last question we normally ask is, is like, what would you leave the audience with? But I want to be a little more specific. I want to ask you what uh, you would leave for those that are struggling with an eating disorder or something like it, and maybe even something for like those around them. 
Like what, what, what would you say to them? I think for people struggling with an eating disorder in particular, um, the biggest thing to remember is that you are so much more than your body and your worth is determined by so much more than what you look like or how much you weigh, um, what size you are. All those things are going to be changing throughout the rest of your life. So if you can do your best to start to focus on other things, like I think the best thing to do is take the focus off your body. Sometimes with people with eating disorders, we put the focus even more on their body and what they're eating. Um, and I see it's on Instagram a lot, actually. There'll be a lot of girls who are recovering from eating disorders and they post about all the food they're eating all the time because it's helping hold them accountable to eating more, to whatever, being a part of an encouraging community. But the focus is still on food. And for friends and family, like, and the person themselves who's struggling, I say go out and focus on something else. Like, go take up a, a new hobby, go, you know, read more books, watch more movies, travel to more places to just like expand your perspective beyond just the narrow focus of what your body looks like and what you're putting into it. Um, because at the end of the day, our bodies are just like a vehicle and a tool to like live and experience life to the fullest. And so if you're, yeah, if you're doing all you can to be healthy so that you can use your five senses to the best of your abilities, like you're doing it right. Thank you.